Hey there, welcome to ATL and 29, a Peachtree Hoops podcast where we look at the NBA from the starting point of Atlanta. My name is Kevin Chenard. I'm here with Glenn Willis of Peachtree Hoops. And I think the most important thing that we have to start off with here, Glenn, is, you know, after watching that Dallas Hawks game, why is Tim Hardaway Jr. so upset about the Hawks? Like, he acts like they killed his puppy. Why, why does he hate the Hawks so much? Like, none of the people that were with the Hawks when he was here are here anymore. And they helped him get like a kajillion dollars from the Knicks. Yeah, it makes absolutely no sense to me. <laughs> I, I mean, it, for, in a true like kind of logical, on a logical plane, it makes absolutely no sense. Um, he should be, to your point, kind of grateful. But I think if I kind of try to put myself in the mindset of a NBA player, um. Yeah, they didn't match that offer sheet, and so he probably has convinced himself that he should be offended <laughs> by that, if for no other reason than to turn that into motivation for himself. Uh, you know, professional athletes are weird like that, that they'll seek sometimes any anything they can turn into motivation, and that being offended that a team would pass on the opportunity to pay him all that money to keep him on the team, he's probably turned that into motivation for himself. Yeah, I get it, but... I still don't get it. It gets. Anyways, I'm sure Rick Carlisle is very happy to get a win over a Rajon Rondo team, even though Rondo didn't play. (laughs) I will never forget that team. That team needs wins. I mean, they're behind plan for sure. Oh, I I think they need wins just in general. But it is humorous to think that Carlisle thinks about Rondo. In the same way that Hardaway thinks about the Hawks. <laughs> it's kind of a funny thought. Probably yeah, because they... Funny. The, whenever it was, the one season that Rondo played with the Mavs, and the one time that uh, Rondo and Carlisle got into a, some sort of beef on the bench, the following game was here in Atlanta, and it was like the weirdest game to begin with because nobody could figure out if there was going to be a game because it was snowing. So there were no employees at the vending machines or at the you know concession stands, and there were very few fans, and everybody was unsure if there was even going to be a game. And Rick Carlisle was just like turning purple the whole day. Like when he got asked questions about Rondo, he was just apoplectic, just you know, but in a silent way, just kind of with his eyes and his his glower. But uh, fun times. All right, so I guess we really need to uh, to get to the, the real fun topic, which is what would you think of the last play of the game? Which part? Do you want to talk about the officiating first? You can talk about any part of it. We could, it was, it, it was, it's pretty fascinating. There's a lot going on there. A ton. Yeah, I mean, maybe you get the officiating set aside. Um, I personally think it should have been a foul. But I didn't think that until after about four looks at the replay, which the officials <laughs> of the court obviously don't get that opportunity. Right. I also think it was closer to kind of a 50-50 call, just a complete coin toss as to whether that was a foul or not. That it, I thought it was closer to that than an obvious foul. I didn't see it as an obvious foul. Um, so, you know, I, I, I think, you know, if I, you know, it, a person looking back at it, it, at least the way I see it, looked like a foul, but I don't begrudge the officials on the on the floor for making the call that they made because I think it was 
bang bang the way that the rule book reads is that i'm paraphrasing a little bit here but um the rule book basically says just because there's contact doesn't mean there's a foul for sure that the officials have to determine whether there was incidental contact or not and on the play like that that that's quick with that much movement especially on a like an inbounds play where so much movement happens all at once that's kind of impossible right even for three officials to kind of see and officiate that so i'm not mad at the officials at all Although I think, um, you know, if you ask me to pick one side or the other, I think it was probably a foul. Yeah, for me, it was just the the archetype of the situation where they're not going to call it. And you're going to see it in the two-minute report. So you'll get the pat on the back of, hey, it should have been a foul. But yeah, we didn't call it. Like, it's, it's like, it's exactly that. Like, they're going to. I I think the odds are like 70-30 that when you see the last two-minute report tomorrow, they're going to say something about how it affected his uh, speed, rhythm, and balance, or whatever the four nouns are that they use to qualify whether the contact should be a foul or not. Um, I think they'll say that it did and that it should have been a foul, and it's just, you know, it's the uh, participation trophy that, that you get for... Uh, having a, a foul by the letter of the law, but not one that anybody was willing to blow a whistle on. Uh, my gut feeling is that yeah. since they changed the rules on inbounds fouls to the one where you get a technical foul and you get the ball back, they've they, it makes the referees very reluctant to uh, overreact or call anything. Like They'll call the absolute certain lock fouls, but anything that's on the borderline especially at the end of games, they're just going to let it go. Um, and so, you know, for me, I think hopefully what, what Trey gets out of this is that, you know, the next time that happens, he makes sort of, he redoubles his efforts, number one, to stay on his feet, but number two, you know, grab Willie Cauley-Stein. If they're not going to call him for bumping into you, grab at him. <laughs> Right. I, you know, like they, 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 you know, I just feel like that there's that's a situation where they're going to let stuff go. So take advantage of the fact that they're going to let stuff go and don't let it turn against you. Yeah, and and I think that it takes time for players to learn how to how to master that part of the game. And you know, I think being in year three, even though he's played a ton in terms of like starting from day one and, and minutes load and all that sort of stuff. Totally fine that he's still at a point where there's more to learn in the nuanced areas. I was impressed that you threw off three of the four. Yeah, I think I got one wrong, though. Yeah, No, it's all, I remember it's always SQBR, and it's speed, balance, rhythm. I couldn't have come up with that, I don't think, unless you said that. Quickness I can never remember what the is. Quickness or something? Yeah, that, that, that might be it. Um, By the way, I'm really thirsty, so I know I shouldn't be like making noise drinking on the podcast. Not, this is just seltzer, but... I'm really thirsty after the game because I don't know. That, I didn't that really wasn't going to make so I'm just going to be over here gulping while you talk. Go for it. <laughs> that game make anybody anybody drink. Um, yeah, and so maybe we could talk a minute if in your podcast. But while you're taking a gulp, there, I'm going to take advantage. <laughs> go, go, um, and talk about the play design. Um, I had to kind of work through that uh, in kind of in waves, and I was I was having a few conversations on Twitter and. One with uh, Jason Walker, um, and I was pointing out that hey, you know, it looked like the play wasn't drawn up for Trey, and that 
you know, Lloyd Pierce asked Trey to set a screen and Trey uh, embraced it, even though he wasn't the person the play was drawn up for. But uh, then I heard someone share that post game. I think Trey said the play was for him, which makes some sense. Kind of. Yeah. I, I mean, was... Lloyd said that there were multiple options and I believe yeah. that. I think it was sort of, you know, just, and I think it's more of a temporal thing just based on time. Like John was the first option because that's, the first thing that's going to happen time-wise. Right. And then if it's not there, you go to Trey. But right. Trey was on the and ground. Then, and then Gallo was sort of like the last right. last option there, it seemed like. But I I, th- I think what happened after kind of talking it through um, with a few people is that Trey saw an opportunity, he thought, to get that free throw that you mentioned. Right. And you get the ball back. And tie the game and still have possession. And so he kind of made a command decision all on his own to sure. – initiate the contact and get the call. And and maybe that's a learning point too, is do you, yeah. if the play is designed for you to be maybe the primary, um, you know, person to get that shot, uh, do you put yourself on the floor? Does it blow everything else up on the court? Did it mess up any, did it degrade their options at all by having him end up on the court? If he was the one that initiated that. And again, that's probably a learning point for, for Trey. It's it's there's not a right and wrong answer there in terms of how you handle that. Bottom line is if he gets the call, everybody's patting him on the back for being smart and aware <laughs> and all that sort of stuff. You yeah. don't get the call, you end up on the floor, you're down one of the primary options you were looking um for in terms of creating that shot. So maybe you maybe you stay on your feet, you know. Uh, you know, there's probably, like I said, there's probably not a right and wrong way to do that. But I think Trey is um, different, a little different, and that he can process a lot of different things at the same time. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I think he, when he saw Willie Collie Stein there, as he went to set the screen, whether it was supposed to be an actual screen or not, or just something that he showed and then slipped it, he uh, embraced that contact, feeling like that he had executed it such that he deserved the free throw. And like I said a few minutes ago. I think he was right, but I think you're also rolling the dice a little bit. Yeah, and I think, you know, just because he set contact on the screen, um, you know, I think if he stays upright, he's still a primary option on that play. Sure. Maybe, uh, and and I think it was Jason on Twitter who said something to the effect of, uh, yeah, Kevin didn't throw that pass to John, but part of the reason is he thought he had sort of the default safe option and just kind of handed off to Trey there, but then Trey wasn't there because he was on the ground, so he he lost that option. Uh, and so for me, you know, I'm looking at it and I'm like, I th- I think the pass to John, I know that uh, I think it was Tim Hardaway Jr. got the tag on Collins, but I, at the same time. It still feels like he's got inside position. He's got a vertical advantage. I mean, I feel like the window is there, and it's a chancy pass, but just like any shot you would take at the end of the game, there's a chance that you connect on it and a chance that you don't. And I I think that the chance on the pass was worth it, and I'm weighing that versus Gallinari, but maybe, you know, really honestly, you should be weighing it versus Trey. Of course, just Trey wasn't there. But I hate kind of giving Gallinari the ball with five seconds left because he's glacially slow. So you give it right. to him 30 feet from the basket and say create something, and like he just doesn't have enough time to do that. It, it takes him more time. And the types of fouls that Gallinari would typically uh, you know, draw a whistle on because he's really great at that are, are the kind of whistles that you know they might not call or honestly teams just might not uh, commit at the end of the games because they're being more careful and they're more mentally sharp. 
Yeah, I, I like tall shooters as like your last option, but I think, you know, I think if JC's not there in the lob, um, if Trey is not there, that they've drawn enough attention from the defense that he just kind of gets a probably an open look three feet behind the three point line wherever he ends up. And that's a and that's a good third option, I think. Um, but because Trey ended up on the floor, Gallo drew a lot more attention to himself and had to kind of dribble into a shot, which I totally agree with you. That's not what you're looking for there. But on top of that, a lot of coaches around the league, um, they will, they, they'll use like their most experienced players as the inbounds passers. And I, I think that maybe that's one thing that the average fan I'll say doesn't understand how hard that job is. Um, because basically when you see the pass, <laughs> you have a split second. Yeah, I, I'm laughing for a reason. Gonna... I'm sorry. I'm not just trying to be rude. I'll tell you why in a second. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I agree with you that Hardaway came down and tagged JC. I don't think that cut off the lob to the to the uh, rim for him. But I think it made that play look more closed off to Herter. I think that was sort for of the sure. primary. Yep. That's even how tagging works in the pick and roll is you'll have like a you know a six foot guy come down and tag the roller and it's not like he's gonna have a, you know any opportunity to actually affect the lob at the you know highest point of the of the lob at the rim. Um it, it's really to make that play look closed off and make that passing lane look closed down. And that's what Hardaway did. So I thought I thought the you know the lob was there again after looking at it a few times, but I can totally understand why when Herder saw Hardaway tag down on JC that it didn't look like the best option for him to pull the trigger on because he only gets one shot at making that inbound pass yeah so the reason i was laughing is because number one i'm i'm sort of fascinated by just that role i like you said i think that's something that's sort of undersold by by uh by the average fan that the inbound pass isn't particularly interesting but it's it's almost like being the quarterback on offense. I mean, you're you're really pulling the trigger, and you're you're the puppet master at that point, as far as you know, making the key decision and completing the pass because it's going to be a tough tough pass. And uh, you know, I'm really intrigued by it. So you know, uh, Chris Kirchner asked Lloyd about it, and I asked Kevin about it because you know I just want to know, you know, what is he learning in that role? You know, what do you what does it take to be a good inbounds passer? And, you know, Kevin listed some of the qualities, but then he also just kind of said to me, you know, I guess you should ask Lloyd about it. He didn't seem to want to answer the question. But, you know, I I think they're kind of force-feeding Kevin in that role. Um, you know, it's probably a good role for him. He's, he's the secondary playmaker. So, you know, if you want Trey to have the ball, you're not going to have Trey do it. Um, but you you want to have a good passer do it. I think he's he could be dangerous as sort of the uh, sort of give and go inbounds pass kind of play and keep defenses honest that way. And it, it sort of seems like you know even though uh, you know he might not be the best at it now, and he's certainly not the most experienced player uh, of the five when you have somebody like Gallinari out there. But I it, I do think that the Hawks want him to grow in that role, so they're just going to keep having him do it. Yeah, so I I agree that Herder is um, a player they want to kind of grow into that role. That totally makes sense. Everything you said makes sense to me. I think if everybody's healthy and active, um, it might it might have gone a little differently tonight. I think if Rondo's active, he there's a decent chance he gets the 
role of being the inbound passer. Uh, Pierce has used him before this season in that exact role before. Um, and on, in addition to that, um, if Hunter's active, Gallo might be the inbounder, and then Hunter is the third option as the shooter on the court. Um, but they didn't, yeah, absolutely. You know, so, you know, so being shorthanded effect affects that. And Rondo's been used over the course of his career a ton in that role. And if you've like, you know, if you just kind of hit on how coaches around the league handle that, like Nick Nurse always uses Kyle Lowry, even though he's like a you know pretty clutch shooter. He's such a just a good veteran, smart decision maker. And then you think back to the playoff where where David Blatt had drew up a play for LeBron to inbound the ball. There's like, I think barely a second left on the clock and LeBron scrapped the play and got the shot himself and made it. But I think the thinking there. Wait, so how did he do that? Wait, I, I don't like, I don't know this play off the top of my head. So you're saying LeBron was the inbounder. Then what happens? LeBron was supposed to be the inbounder. Okay. It, David Blatt blew up the tray, blew up, drew up the play. And, and LeBron then just LeBron didn't inbound, just gave it to somebody else and said, Hey, give no. me the ball or something. When LeBron and the other four players are going to the court, LeBron basically said, forget that, just give me the ball. <laughs> Actually, that does sound vaguely familiar now. Okay, I, I didn't understand what you were saying, but now that, yeah. I, now that I've got the correct version, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I think but, I but do I think, remember that. But I think the thinking with Blatt is I want a veteran decision maker. I want my best passer in that role, especially in that case. I think it was like 1.1 on the clock or something like that. You you know, that, that pass is the most supportive part of the, of the play, you know to set up for, you know, whatever the statistical odds you are going to get a makeable shot, you know. Um, but if you, if you just kind of watch that situation around the league, it usually is a veteran. It usually is, you know, one of the team's two best passers, not the best passer uh, on the team. Um, and so I think it was totally fine to go with Herter in that case. I just think that there would, might have been other alternatives if Hunter was healthy, if Rondo was active, et cetera. So. Yeah, and what what Pierce said officially on Herter being the inbound passer is he said sometimes you need a guy with size to make the pass. John was open on the lob for a split second. I think he's a cerebral player. You need someone you trust to make the pass. For sure. And he handles the ball a lot, so he was kind of in rhythm of playing that role, you know, in the game of creating and being the person that's initiating through his passing. So it, I think it is hard to take someone who hasn't been, especially a younger player, who hasn't been, you know, kind of making decisions like that throughout the game and then ask them to do it all of a sudden at the end of the game. So I, I thought the play design was good. I'd be, I, I'd like to know, I, I assume Trey was going to come back toward the three-point break uh, near the inbound pass. That's where a right. ton of media coaches draw up that play to sure. kind of get that out there, sort of on yep. the DHO. Um, you know, it, I find it fascinating personally to think about, you know, does it make sense to draw up shots for Trey in that situation? He's a small guy, and it, he needs more space. And with a, just a little bit of time, that's not ideal. Um, and, you know, one thing I thought when they signed Gallo this year was that he might get the call in some cases to be the guy they draw the play up for just because it's easier to get him with that high release point and everything, a shot if they run it for him. But, you know, Trey's in year three, and, you know, I think that if you're building around him, Kind of by default, you kind of have to give him the opportunities to make those shots and games until you know maybe uh, it, it, that looks like just not the feasible option every time you're in that situation. So I think that if you look around the league, any player at this point in their career that has the stature that Trey has is going to be the default guy to be the first option on that play. So that's normal. 
I just think it's a little bit suboptimal that he's a smaller guy. And if you look around the league, right. sometimes smaller guys aren't the best option in that situation. And I think that's part of the reason that all season long we've seen the Hawks sort of pumping DeAndre Hunter as a secondary creator. And we haven't seen it much at the end of games yet, but I think they're kind of, I mean, my hunch, and honestly, this hopefully is a, a line of questioning that I could dig into a little bit in the next couple of weeks. But, you know, it, is that why? I mean, how, it, it's going to be hard to do it maybe because he's not healthy. I wish he was healthy. But uh, I, mean, I do think that somehow when you look at the long-term future of this team, that that's sort of a vitally important thing because Trey gets so much attention and he's just not that big. And I don't know if it ever gets to the point where it's like 50-50, but right now it's, you know, 90% of the time the the ball goes to Trey for for the shot at the end of the game. And for a small guy who gets that much attention, it's just not that feasible. And I think they need that balance to be something more like 60-40 or 65-35 something with, right. with DeAndre yeah. being the best second option that they could possibly put together. Yeah, and I think it's different if you need three versus two. I think tonight there was time if Trey was the person to catch the inbound pass for him to work inside the three-point line and kind of get down into an area where he had some space and that would have been totally fine. If you have to have three, I think it's harder to go to Trey then just because it's easier to cut him off and the, def- and the d- defensive team doesn't really have to honor any space inside the three-point line. That's when it becomes, I think, even harder to have a guy right. like Trey size to be your shooter in that situation. But that wasn't the case tonight. There was If he catches the ball near the left three-point break and the defense is really pushed up on him. He has the option because of what the score is to squeeze past them with a dribble or two dribbles maybe and kind of get a decent shot there on the baseline. So I thought the play design was totally solid. Um, didn't work out. Trey didn't get the call. He ended up on the floor. Um, the you know Kevin didn't like the pass to JC. Then all of a sudden Gallo had like, what, two or three defenders dealing with him while he's trying to get a shot up, you know, not not ideal for him to be creating up the dribble in that situation, but that's just kind of how, how it ended up. But it wasn't like anything was, you know, uh, egregiously done from the play design to the execution. I see Trey's logic and what he did totally um, just didn't work out, and that's how it goes. Yeah, well, that's enough of one play when there were 200 plays in the game. So let's let's talk about something else. What do you think about the decision to roll with uh, Tony Snell late? I, you know, I think he's a great option when you're dealing with a big point guard. If he can call Luca, I don't know. I don't know why we're not just calling him that nowadays, but people yeah. seem to not want to embrace that. But, you know, I think he's a great option there. Um, and I think that, you know, you know, P- Lloyd Pierce is at the point where if Cam doesn't really have it offensively, and that, you know, when the stretch, final stretch of the game hits the last four or five minutes or whatever that's going to be, that he's going to go with one of his veterans. It's going to be, you know, um, Snell probably or Hill in the case tonight in terms of who is available in the rotation and such. And Hill gives you more, I'm sorry, Snell gives you a little more shooting equity than, than yes, Hill does. For sure. Um, and Snell's a better on-ball defender. Yes. And, you know, you need a big, you know, guy that can be a little bit physical with Luca. And I think that was the, the good option tonight. So, I mean, I think Snell's done good things for them since he's, for sure. his minutes back up a little bit and played in the rotation. But, uh, you know, Cam get, Cam didn't quite have it together this, in this game, and he wasn't, in my view, the right person to be part of that closing unit. What, what were your thoughts on it? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think, you know, you mentioned sort of choosing between Snell and Hill, and I think 
Snell's also, I think you said maybe on the ball, more comfortable as a defender. And I would just say, yeah, just generally on the perimeter too as a defender. Sure. I think he's more comfortable. But yeah, yeah just, he'll, I, I pretty much agree with what you said. You know, he's, he's, a, he's a better shooter than Hill. Um, you know, I think Hill's a little more, has a little more facility near the basket maybe than, than Snell. But uh, yeah, I was all for it. I mean, Cam, Cam struggled on offense for a long time, but he was particularly off tonight. Like his... His misses weren't particularly close. Like they weren't rimming out; they were off the side of the rim kind of misses. So I think, you know, once Lucas started ducking under Cam's screen, or you know, ducking under screens when he was guarding Cam, uh, it it was time. Yeah, and that's part of the plan for this year is to use that roster depth to have other options that in the game last year. They basically had to close with the young guys, and that was really the only option that they had. This year they have the opportunity to put a veteran on the court if one of the young guys, and unfortunately of recent that's been too often Cam. Hopefully, you know, a month from now that's he's in a different place. But where he is right now, if, um, you know, he hasn't kind of figured out a way to be helpful on offense, um, they have veterans that are options that can help them both ends of the court. Uh, and I, I totally agree with you that Snell has more value on ball defending um, Hill's awesome help defender and an organizer. Um, and one of the, in my view, one of the five best players in the league, maybe at like zoning up the weak side when you're on that backside helping, mm-hmm. but he struggles to, in comparison to Snell, he, he struggles to keep guys in front of him. And, um, you, that's what you need. But I thought he was doing a good job tonight specifically though. Like tonight on ball, I thought he was pretty crisp. Yeah. Uh, yeah, he can be physical. I think if I think if I think I'd have to go back and look, but my recollection is Pierce would throw that out there once Luca was a you know pretty far into his his rotation <laughs> and was a little tired. That that gives right. Solo a little bit to work with to kind of maybe stay step for step there. So I thought the way that the rotation worked the whole game was pretty much ideal. Um, yeah. it, it was a weird Capella game. He, he didn't look like himself tonight, um, but the, you know, but the Mavericks, the Mavericks are kind of built to play traditional bigs off the floor. Anyway, that's what happened last when they played last week, you know, Capella didn't really work in, in that game either. Nope. Um, but he still typically shows a little more energy, but you know, he's a human being just like the rest of us are and has good days at work and bad days at work. That's I think allowed, <laughs> but he definitely to me didn't look like himself. Did you think he looked a little off or were you, yeah, I mean, I'm I'm trying to. I mean, it's it's tricky, right? Because it's kind of the problem you have with with all big bigs, which is that they kind of muck up the game. It's never as pretty with Capella out there, um, and that's that's true of so many like good defending, good rebounding, seven foot bigs who can't pass. Like it's not elegant. It kind of mucks up the game and slows it down and there are more missed shots and it's hard to get a feel for you know is it is this making the team better because while uh the other team's going to miss more shots you are too and it it you, you really kind of have to dig into the numbers and so i haven't really sat down and looked at just the hawks versus mavericks numbers for some of these capella lineups but it you know my gut feeling is that they've been kind of a disaster that between the traps and the zones and the junk defenses that, that Rick Carlisle's throwing out there, you need good passers. 
And when you have Capella and Collins both out there, I mean, Collins has gotten a little better this season, but you just you don't have enough passing. You don't have enough playmaking. They kind of just make you look sort of silly on offense uh, when there aren't enough playmakers out there. And so, you know, unless he's doing elite things on the offensive glass, um, you know, it gets, it gets you know, or defending the rim. And it's hard for him to be around the rim when he's playing against Porzingis and Cleaver, but, uh, you know, then you've, you've got to weigh it heavily and think about, okay, you know, maybe it's just not going to be his night because unless he's punishing them on the offensive glass, it's just not really going to, it's not really going to be a good thing for the Hawks in a lot of situations against Dallas. Yeah, I I think that's I've I've written this a piece for Hughes uh, I think more than once, but I think that's kind of the beauty of Capella is that he's easily, especially the way he's played this year, good enough to be your defensive anchor and to start um, as your backline defender. But if the game flow kind of takes you away from using a traditional big to close the game, he's just not going to get his feelings hurt. You know, he he gets it, he understands it, he understands what he can do. Right. He, I think he understands most of the time what he can't do. There, there's a few moments where it looks like he thinks he's uh, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar occasionally, but you know, you give your big man who works his tail yeah, off on defense. Fine. Especially in the leader. first quarter, you get him some, you know, a couple yeah. of post-ups. That's, you know, that's fine. It kind of gets that's him a right. rhythm and gets him his legs, and you know, I have no problem with that. But yeah, you you don't want to make that anything essential in your offense. Yeah, but like. Like last week when they played in Atlanta, um, you know, when they were trapping Trey, he's really not – doesn't have any value there. He, they can't really do anything with the ball. Uh, if Once Trey kind of gives the ball up to let the rest of the you know, team play four on three, he's just not the best option and, and almost any any role there. Um, but that's fine. I mean, Capella's you know, role on the team you know, should be that he helps you start and get your defense set. And then if he – you know, fits for how you need to finish the game. Great. If he doesn't fit, that's okay too. And that's why you have um, kind of complementary um, skills at the four and the five, like Gallo and you know JC. Um, and hopefully, as Congo kind of eventually kind of grows into his role, he'll offer a little bit something different too. But yeah, it was it was just a weird. It just looked weird that he didn't have kind of this normal energy. But I didn't think that was necessarily factoring the outcome of the game. Yeah, I think when you go down the line for the Hawks tonight, they didn't win the game. But you look at you know, how each player played, and I, mean, I think it's encouraging that most of your core players played well, with the exception of of Cam and uh, Clint. Uh, you know, other than that, I thought most of the players played really well. I thought it was rough in the minutes that they didn't have Trey out there. Like the offense just just died when when Trey wasn't out there. I yeah. I feel like they lost the Goodwin minutes. They especially lost the Okongwu minutes. Um, and the, those, you know, you know two-point game or whatever it was at the end. I mean, that, that makes a big difference. Um, the Hawks are a deep team, but uh, if you're going to try to incorporate Rondo and a Kongwu and Goodwin, um, you know, it's going to get a little bit dicey. They just doesn't feel like they have enough offense. 
in some of these bench lineups. Um, I don't know. That's 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 one big concern going forward, especially you know now that Herder is up with the starters and obviously Bogdanovich isn't healthy. It's just the offense dies when Trey isn't there. Yeah, especially on the nights that Rondo doesn't play, and then Rondo hasn't been awesome, but he can at no. least <laughs> he can at I'm least. I'm glad you said that. Yeah, but but like like when Gallo has it going, Rondo knows how to get Gallo the ball in an optimal spot, right? He knows how to do some things like that. But uh, I feel bad for Goodwin because he'll not play for a week and a half and then get thrown onto the court. And I felt bad for him tonight because he was out there with Cam, who didn't really have any juice on ball at all. Um, no, I you mean, know, yes, but some of these lines that's his are role. Rough. Goodwin has to be prepared to not play for three weeks and then go play. And, you know, so I, I don't feel bad for him in that sense that, you know, that I fully understand that's his role on the team. Right. But it's it's hard. You know, what they it's ask hard. of him sometimes is yeah. hard. Yep. Um, but I, I feel like where they are now with the depth that they do have and don't have with the injuries, that Gallo is kind of like their swing player that oftentimes in close games will kind of decide if they win or not. Right. Um, like last week, you know, versus the Mavs, he was really helpful and really useful. And then he kind of, I can't remember if he hit his minutes limit or they went past it and he just kind of ran out of juice. But tonight I think he was like two for 10 and just couldn't get shots to go down. And if he has a, even a four for 10 night, you know, something like that, that's very reasonable expectation for him. They probably win this game, but they, they definitely need Gallo to make shots on the second unit. Um, but when Capella got into foul trouble, and then when the game flow took them away from using Capello, sorry Capella, um, Gallo, you know, was had to play maybe longer stretches than he's ready for right now, and you know, that affects his legs, that affects your shot, and and also Dallas is kind of brilliant offensively at attacking your weakness on defense, and Gallo's inability to move, you know, like Brunson was attacking Trey, and oftentimes they put Gallo on the weak side, make him the help defender at the rim. And he just couldn't get there, you know? Yeah. So, you know, Dallas is a super smart team. They really know what they're doing. They don't really have a pick at a defense. I think the Hawks needed Gallo's offense tonight, but the Mavericks, um, you know, did a good job of kind of taking advantage of what Gallo can't, can't give you a defense. What did you think of Trey and Kevin defensively tonight? I thought they were good. I think Trey got tired, and and um, I think Trey was either unwilling or unable. I I think because he's been he was playing hard early and working really hard. You know, even when he got the switch on to Luca and things like that. But in the fourth quarter, I thought he could. Even, I think he got to a point that a lot of players get to playing at that level is I can either give it on offense or defense. He kind of ran out of juice to do it both ends. And I, like I said a moment ago, the, the Mavericks are a really smart team. And as soon as he sort of didn't really have that effort or that ability to close out on shooters or whatever it was, they started going right at him. And that's what dug that, like, what it was like six, seven, eight-point hole they had to deal with for a while was was a kind of a series where they missed like three shots in a row and on the other end, the Mavericks just went right at tire tray. So, but I think, you know, apart from that part of the game, I thought they did a great job. Yeah. I was going to say the same thing. I thought that, that, you know, through the first three quarters, I thought her and Trey were playing excellent defense and, you know, the fourth, it got tricky. The, the Mavs got very precise in how they attacked and, you know, they had Trey, Brun- I'm sorry, they had, um, 
Tim Hardaway got the T's mixed up. They had Tim Hardaway Jr., Rick Rick Brunson, not Rick Brunson, Jalen Brunson. Yeah, Rick's God dad. damn, I'm so old. <laughs> I'm, right, I'm right there with you. Rick Brunson is white and right in my wheelhouse. In terms I call of Mike life. Malone like Brendan Malone half the time because I'm so <laughs> yeah, old. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> okay, I'm going to get some names right here. Tim Hardaway Jr., Jalen Brunson, and Luca kind of all going at the same time. But but yeah, through the first three quarters, you know, I thought Kevin and Trey were were you know doing really well on switches. They were active. They were rebounding. Especially Trey was was digging him pretty hard on the defensive glass, making sure that when the ball was kind of loose for a defensive rebound, that he was he was there to to be one of the receivers. And I I was impressed with Trey's defense through the first three quarters. It's uh, but like you said, yeah, you know, it's it's hard to carry the offense as much as Trey does and be a defensive player for four quarters. It's it's a big load. I mean, he's, he's carrying a huge load on offense, um, you know, when he's getting yeah, trapped yeah. and all that. And it's, that's, yeah. that's a big burden. I mean, you, you see what happens to the offense when Trey isn't out there and you, you kind of see, you know, he, he's doing a lot. He is. And, and I would guess that NBA fans that, don't watch but Hawks maybe probably have like very little appreciation for how much name is Hunter. You know, Hunter's been kind of the de facto point guard defender and he's been their yeah. second best option on offense the whole year. So it's um, that, that affects Trey's workload, you know, because you don't have Hunter to throw at Luca in this case, um, you know, Trey's going to get switched on to Luca that many more times and Trey's going to get put into kind of compromising defensive positions where he has to really kind of, use effort to dig his way out of uh, a suboptimal situation on defense uh, and then doesn't have the help on offense. Um, you know, that's a ton to ask of Trey. And that's probably, you know, if Trey, you know, shoots the ball, you know, you know, just a few ticks better in this game, the Hawks win. But, you know, the their situation with depth and what they have available to kind of bring into the rotation um, on both ends of the court, it, it all comes down to Trey, and in close games like this, you need your best player to make plays in the game. And um, you know, Trey struggled to kind of find a way to do that. It's not because he was, you know, I, I don't think it, you know anyone would say like he choked or you know any anything even close to that. But just in terms of you know finding a way to kind of find makeable shots for himself, um, you know, it seemed like most of what he's able to do late in the game was either get the free throw line or put up a thirty-two footer. Um, that either went down or didn't, you know, and that's not typically, not typically going to lead you to win. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned Hunter because he's so good. <laughs> like, I was, I feel like I was one of the people that was super pro Hunter coming into the season, and he's, you know, like with all the players that they acquired, Bogdanovich and Gallinari and you know in a fat sort of de facto uh Capella because Capella was injured last season it's like well who are you excited to see I was excited to see Hunter like that's that's the guy I wanted to see this season I want to see what he looks like what can he do and like even like my best case scenario and that was a sunny scenario I think compared to most people like he just detonated it like he's I wasn't expecting him to be as good with the ball in his hands as he has been and I didn't expect him to be as good 
defending small players as he has been. Like those those two things I thought he kind of struggled a little bit with in his first season. And like he's completely flipped the script on both of them. Like Yeah. Like they they put him on Kyrie and it worked. Like that that yeah. was a good option on Kyrie. And like if you if you like I if you told 2020 me that that was going to happen i'd be like no that's silly talk stop and and it happened yeah it's a huge huge blow to what they're you know what they maybe could otherwise have done these next few months hopefully they still kind of find a way to be creative and and get close to as many wins but um you know in the the off season which was obviously just an absolute you know, blur this last <laughs> this last year because it was so compressed. Um, sometimes what a team doesn't do as is as telling as what a team does. And so they added Bogdanovich, he's a two. They added Dunn, you know, he's a two. Um, they kind of stayed away. You know, Snell plays the three mostly, but he's a guy that wasn't, you know, a lock to be in rotation. Right. Hill is a four. They kind of stayed away from that small forward spot. You know, they added some competition for Herder, you know, they added some depth, offensive depth at the four and five with Gallo, but they didn't bring in anybody that could, you know, have conceivably competed with minutes or Hunter. I think it just tells you a lot about what the team thinks they have in him and that that with nine new players, none of them were really ever going to be any competition for Hunter, um, which says, like I said, I just think it says a lot about what they think they have in him. Yeah. Well, is there uh, is there anything we're missing? I feel like there's one more question I had for you that I've forgotten, but if it's gone, it's gone. Uh, is there anything else you want to talk about tonight? I don't think so. I still think they're in a fine place. I know fans are get frustrated when they're not winning close games, but actually, that was it. That was my question, and this is another thing I kind of want to ask some probing questions about this week. But like, do you think there's anything to the fact that? You know, the Hawks are what? I think it's 11-13 now. That's right. Feels like they're still probably like a net positive on points for the season. Like, it feels like they win by comfortable, not comfortable, but, you know, they, they win by decent size margins. But then when they lose, they lose by one. They lose by two. It's right. like they're losing very close games. Like, they're not getting blown out. Remember the some of the games last season, like the, the trip to LA where they lost by like a hundred points in one weekend. And then um, Houston. <laughs> and then Houston. Like they were, they were just getting boat raced to use my favorite term from the last couple of weeks. Um, <laughs> they haven't gotten boat raced in a long time. Like they, they just constantly lose by 1.2.3 points. Like they haven't figured out how to win close games. Is, yeah. is there anything to that? I do. I, I think there's something to young-ish teams learning how to win close games, especially against experienced teams and or teams that have had some continuity for a while. You know, I, I think you have to kind of go through those moments, work through ad- adversity, and I think they've taken a step. You know, what we saw in like their, say maybe their first dozen games was um, – kind of giving up a lead or falling behind like 10, 12, 14 points. And now when they're slipping, they're, they're pretty consistently able to catch it at about six or seven points, which is what they did tonight. Kind of stop, you know, kind of find a way to disrupt the other team's 
momentum and flow, find you know, a play to make to kind of, you know, give themselves a chance to kind of, you know, get on more solid footing. And so I think they're for me, they're showing progress in not falling as far behind as they were, like I said, their first dozen games or so, you know, getting back to tie a game more quickly as opposed to constantly being down, like always being down like two scores in the last minute, being more down one score or tie game. Um, you know, and so I, for me, when I watch that, I think they're, they're making progress. Um, so it's just, but it's still, I mean, you know, you know, Trey, you're three, Kevin, you're three, you know, Hunter, you're two, Cam, you're two, you know, John's year four. That's your, you know, key group. Um, you know, I think you, you know, Bogdanovich was going to help more if he was available. He's not, you know, so that, that's just kind of what you have. And so my view and my experience, you know, coaching, um, you know, when I was coaching, you know, AAU teams and stuff, but when I took a team to their third tournament, they were more reliable in terms of what they were going to do. That's good. That's a different thing, but it's kind of the same dynamic. So I think it's just a matter of continuing to watch them kind of make progress and figure it out and, They'll be fine. I, I think if I if I looked right now, I bet they're still top ten in net rating. Um, you know, to your point, they're you know overall their overall kind of macro level performance has been good, and so I think they're they're in good shape. Um, you know, for me, you know, something I've been kind of stewing on is I think their head to head games in terms of where they finish in the East. I think their head to head games with Raptors, Pacers, um, are really key. Maybe the Heat, maybe the Hornets. I think the Heat will uh, – when I say maybe the Heat, I don't mean the Heat won't catch up. I mean maybe the Heat just go right past them, <laughs> you know, <laughs> in the standings. Uh, maybe the Hornets. Uh, the, I don't know how lasting kind of they are. They're a youngest team as well. But there's – I see Pacers. I see Raptors for sure. And then, you know, maybe – you know, if Cavaliers, if, they're, if they continue to be plucky and, and the Hornets, yeah, all those head-to-head games are critical. And they have the Pacers this weekend. They had the Raptors last weekend. They beat the Raptors. And so, I, you know, typically in a season, you, I don't tease out, like, specific games. But, but for this year, I think there's going to be about three or four teams that are they're jostling with for where they land in the Eastern Conference, whether it's seven, eight, nine, or, you know, higher or lower, whatever it is. I think those head-to-head games are going to be, you know, pretty big deal uh and you know raptors they got a win last week pacers this weekend hopefully they'll get that win too that was a long answer to your question about close games though (laughs) no but it's a good answer it sounds sounds about right to me all right glenn well uh thank you very much i appreciate you uh hopping on and uh going through this one it was certainly an interesting game yeah i thought it was a fun game not the outcome we all wanted i think but no, it's entertaining. Yeah. Yeah. All definitely. right. Thanks, man. Thanks, Kevin.